BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for this podcast comes from the law firm Fenwick. For more than four decades, Fenwick has helped innovative companies become market leaders. Online at Fenwick.com. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. A federal judge in San Diego wants the Trump administration to do more in the search for parents of hundreds of children it separated from them at the Mexican border. Reporter Max Rivlin Nadler tells us the prospects of reuniting these families have been hampered by the COVID-19 pandemic. In court in San Diego on Thursday, federal judge Dana Sabraw said he wants to see more coordination from the government in finding the parents of 545 families that were separated at the border. This comes as part of a status conference meant to enforce the settlement that was supposed to stop the government's family separation policy along the border. The settlement now also includes 1,030 more children who were forced to stay in the United States after their parents were possibly deported as part of a 2017 Department of Justice pilot program. The ACLU and its partner organizations have been trying to find these parents. And so far, they found 485 of them. That leaves 545 children still without their parents. At the hearing, Judge Zabra asked the government, specifically the Department of Justice, to help more with locating parents and share if any of the parents are still in DOJ custody. The government says it believes that 359 of the 545 missing parents have been removed from the U.S. The pandemic has made it difficult for investigators and lawyers to be able to safely look for the missing parents. But they say they're slowly ramping up their efforts in Central America once again. In recent weeks, 47 additional parents have been found by the group Justice in Motion, since it restarted its efforts after a pause because of pandemic lockdowns. Dulce Garcia, executive director of Border Angels, attended a rally on Wednesday morning at the U.S.-Mexico border, following the disclosure that over 500 parents couldn't be located. She worries about the long-term impacts on these children. Even for those families that were able to reunify, and only because of the efforts of other community members like the ACLU that stepped up to defend these children, uh, they're still suffering from that. You know, we, we, we hear all the time from the experts, the mental health professionals, how these uh, individuals' lives are going to be impacted forever. The next status hearing, which will update the number of parents found, is set for December 4th. For The California Report, I'm Maxwell Nadler in San Diego. Further north, a federal court in San Jose has blocked the Trump administration's push to exclude unauthorized immigrants from the census. The count is, of course, used to distribute congressional seats among the states. As KQED's Taiki Hendricks reports, the three-judge panel called the move unconstitutional. The case was brought by the state of California and a coalition that includes the cities of Oakland, San Jose, and Los Angeles. 
They challenged the administration's unprecedented plan to reduce the census total. And yesterday, the judges agreed, saying the Constitution requires a count of, quote, the whole number of persons in each state, regardless of citizenship or immigration status. The ruling went further than a federal court in New York, which last month said that President Trump had illegally overstepped the authority Congress gave the executive branch to carry out the census. Four additional lawsuits on the matter are still pending, but the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear the New York case, and oral arguments are set for November 30th. For The California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. A study out this week from Otis College of Art and Design found the creative economy has been slammed by the coronavirus pandemic. The downturn is particularly affecting Southern California. KCRW's Kaylee Wells has details. Nationally, the unemployment rate is hovering around 8% right now. It goes up to 11% for California and climbs again up to 16% for L.A. County. The steady uptick is thanks in part to SoCal's big media and art sectors. The Otis study estimates 284,000 creative jobs have been lost since February. And that doesn't include jobs that rely on a bustling creative industry, like caterers on a movie set. When you add those in, the number of lost positions leaps to 678,000. The study says the pandemic-induced contraction of the creative economy could reduce California's GDP by about 5%. That comes to losses of around $160 billion per year. For the California Report, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. The stakes just got higher for one of the most closely watched statewide measures on the November ballot, Proposition 22. A California appeals court ruled yesterday that both Uber and Lyft have been misclassifying hundreds of thousands of workers as independent contractors. That ruling requires the companies to reclassify their drivers as employees 
That is unless voters side with the companies and support Prop 22. Meanwhile, two Uber drivers are filing a lawsuit against the company over pop-up messages in the app that solicit support for Prop 22. KQED's Sam Harnett reports. The lawsuit identifies three messages in the Uber app that began popping up in August. One asked drivers to vote for Prop 22, which would legalize contract status for gig workers. A second appeared when drivers logged out, and until it was updated in recent weeks, it offered only two ways to click out of the dialog box, saying yes on Prop 22 or OK. Drivers also received company messages asking them to take action in support of Prop 22. Gig companies maintain that their workers are contractors, which they would become legally if Prop 22 passes. Plaintiffs say the in-app messaging infringes on their rights to be free of political coercion on the job. An Uber spokesperson called the lawsuit absurd, without merit, and filed solely for press attention. For the California Report, I'm Sam Harnett. It is just days before the election, and almost a million California Latinos have already voted. Sounds like a lot, but the raw numbers aren't the whole story, because Latinos make up almost a third of the state's eligible voters. And a lot of folks are working to make sure they can flex that political muscle. But as KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports, the pandemic isn't helping. Alondra Lara is 18. She was born and raised in Sanger, a small city in the Central Valley. She's voting for the first time, and she's fired up. She wants her vote to represent undocumented people in her family and community. It's really important for me to not only express my voice, but express my voice to those who cannot vote. To urge other young Latino citizens to vote, she leads a team of phone bankers with the nonprofit Power California. They meet virtually, via Zoom, while they make those calls. But that work feels very different than before the pandemic, when they were together in an office. We would be sitting right by, right next to our friends. We would feel connected. And we're trying to emulate that with Zoom. It is tough. The pandemic has made it harder to go door to door and safely have those conversations that are key to get many Latino voters to the ballot box, says Lisa Garcia Bedoya. She's a political scientist at UC Berkeley and author of the book Latino Politics. If Latino voters are engaged, right, if people reach out to them, and talk to them about the things that they care about, they vote. And so the challenge this time is, are we able to have those conversations given the difficulty of connecting with people in this moment? Latinos could make a huge difference in competitive congressional races, like between Democratic Representative T.J. Cox and his challenger, Republican David Valadeo in District 21. Valadeo lost the seat two years ago by less than a thousand votes. Both campaigns are running ads in Spanish, but one man in the district says he's not really following the race, and he's not even sure he'll vote. Lo estoy pensando. Jose Luis León owns a restaurant in the city of Lemur. He says he's disappointed with both presidential candidates and doesn't feel well-informed about the rest of what's on the ballot. He wishes there was more personal outreach to voters like him. But, he says, nobody has contacted him yet for this election. Political campaigns, which care about winning, focus most of their efforts on likely voters. But most Latinos are not, says Bedoya at UC Berkeley. If you're a new voter, if you're a a low-propensity voter, you're not going to get contacted by a campaign. And that's 
the space that community-based organizations are trying to fill. But those community organizations mostly work on shoestring budgets, and voter turnout in California doesn't get the kind of attention or billions of dollars that battleground states get. Mindy Romero with the Center for Inclusive Democracy says a big push is needed before the election because Latinos are still underrepresented compared to white or black voters. In 2012, less than 40% of eligible Latinos voted in California. In 2016, it was 46%. If we get above 50%, that's fantastic. Now, that means there's still a long way to go, but it's progress. In the close congressional race in District 21, Latinos make up nearly two-thirds of eligible voters. In the past, their turnout has been low, but... If turnout goes up just a little bit, that will influence who wins and who doesn't win. Alondra Lara is one of the voters who will decide. And she says ensuring Latinos have a say in the election keeps her phone banking. My hope in, in this election is to see those Latino voters voting. I, I really hope that they that they know how much their voice does matter. Matter for American democracy to truly represent all its citizens. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Finally this morning, drag performers have been a fixture of West Hollywood for decades. Now that tradition may extend to city government. That's because the West Hollywood City Council is eyeing the creation of an official drag laureate who would serve as an ambassador to local businesses. KCRW's Danielle Chiriguayo has the story. You might have seen them sashaying at L.A. Pride, the Abbey, or Sunday brunch at Hamburger Mary's. Now they could take center stage at City Hall. The move by the city would designate a drag laureate to serve as a liaison between LGBTQ businesses and the city council, and to help promote arts and culture across West Hollywood. Introduced by council members John Duran and Lauren Meister, a drag laureate would also help honor the significance and impact of drag culture in West Hollywood. A similar role was first suggested in San Francisco back in August through its LGBTQ cultural heritage strategy plan. Like other cities, West Hollywood's economy has been hit hard due to the pandemic. Local mainstays such as Flaming Saddles and Rage have closed permanently. The new position would be expected to help promote local businesses as they start to reopen. City council members have directed city staff to start drafting a proposal. If approved by the council, a committee of community and business leaders from West Hollywood will help select the drag laureate. For the California Report, I'm Danielle Chiriguayo in Los Angeles. And that is the California Report for this Friday, October 23rd, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin, Alice Wolfley, and Holly J. McDeed. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, acknowledging the vital work of local public health departments to keep Californians safe during the pandemic, on the web at chcf.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. 
Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 